now, Lord, as we gather in the presence today of the risen Christ, may we hear with faith and acceptance the message, the truth about him and what it means for us. We pray in his name. Amen. It's been over 40 days since the resurrection. There have been the appearances over that 40-day period. When you read the Gospels by themselves, you wouldn't necessarily know that all of that has been going on. But when you read Luke's account in Acts chapter 1, it tells us that Christ appeared to the disciples over a period of 40 days, giving many convincing proofs that he was alive. And he taught them over that period of time. Can you imagine 40 days of Bible teaching with the resurrected Jesus? And Acts 1 says that the theme, the central theme of that teaching, of that instruction, because they couldn't have fully gotten it before the cross, the theme of that teaching was the kingdom of God. There had been the appearances to the women, to Peter and John, to all the apostles except Thomas, doubting Thomas, who says, you know, I'm not messing around. If I can't put my fingers where the nails were, then I'm not going to believe. And Jesus called his bluff, so to speak. And he showed up the next time and he says, Thomas, come over here. Stop doubting. Believe. But in a certain sense, I respect Thomas. This wasn't just going to be something that he wanted to be uncertain and unclear about and only hopeful about, some kind of cunningly devised fable, as Peter would later say it. He wanted it to be real. Jesus had told them to wait in Jerusalem before launching out in ministry and mission, to wait in Jerusalem until they received the promised outpouring the promised baptism in the Holy Spirit to empower them for their witness and for their mission. And so that's exactly what is playing out in the passage that we'll focus on this morning in Acts chapter 2. The gathered believers have just been baptized by the outpoured Holy Spirit and they are speaking, they are witnessing that was the point. You'll be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then the uttermost parts of the earth, but not till you get Holy Spirit power. And so on the day of Pentecost, that power comes at the Holy Spirit and it's like there were tongues of fire on each one of the apostles and they were speaking in languages that they hadn't known before because people were gathered for the Pentecost festival in Jerusalem. So all the nations of the earth were there hearing this miraculous pronouncement and proclamation. It says, from every nation under heaven. The crowd is amazed and perplexed. They can't tell what's going on. They're asking, what does this mean? And we have to use our sanctified and imagination and try to really put ourselves in the place of something extraordinary like this going on, maybe in the uh, temple courts. Some of them even make fun of the apostles and accuse the Christians of being drunk. I mean, if you hear people talking what sounds like gibberish to you, that wouldn't be that big of a stretch. 
That's when Peter stands up with the other apostles and launches in to an extraordinary message, an extraordinary sermon, really the first Easter sermon. This is the first time since the resurrection that any believer in in Jesus has publicly proclaimed what it all means. It's an extraordinary message and sermon. It's filled with Old Testament allusions from the book of Joel, from the Psalms, and other places in the Bible. And you might be tempted to think, wow, how did Peter, this common fisherman, how did he put all of this together? Well, remember a big part of the answer, he's just been through a 40-day Bible study with the risen, resurrected Christ. And so what we find, and we can only see parts of it, pick it up in verse 22 of Acts 2, as Peter summarizes the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. This real human being who'd been born in a real place, lived as a carpenter's son, and then not till the age of 30, but at 30, launched his extraordinary public ministry. Fellow Israelites, Peter says, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. No one really disputed that. The enemies didn't dispute that Jesus did miracles. They just tried to attribute some kind of demonic cause to them. So you have this man, he's extraordinary. He's extraordinary in the way he teaches and he's extraordinary in the miracles that he can perform. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now, there's a lot there that we don't have time for. In the one sense, the crucifixion of Jesus happens according to the deliberate plan and foreknowledge of God. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a reaction on God's part. He wasn't caught off guard. In one sense, it was He who had planned and purposed it all. But at the same time, those who carried it out are rightly described as wicked, that is to say, responsible, culpable actors in the story. You put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And remember again, crucifixion was the worst of the worst ways to be executed by the state. No Roman citizen could be crucified. But that's what happened to this Jesus of Nazareth. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. You know, it's so easy to race past a passage like that. But it's extraordinary what what Peter is now claiming. You crucified him, and I mean, he was a bloody mess when he was laid in that tomb, but God raised him from the dead. In fact, says Peter, given who he is and what he was doing, it was impossible for death to hold him. The Easter hymn, death could not keep its prey. Jesus, my Savior, he tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord. 
And then skipping down to verse 31, after Peter continues to make his argument from Psalm 16 and what happened to David and prophecies of David, but again, for time's sake, seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, David did. That the Messiah was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor his body see, did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. And we, we apostles, he's saying, are all witnesses of it. Remember when Judas needed to be replaced, what the qualifications were for being a candidate for being an apostle. It says there in Acts that it has to be someone who was with us from the baptism of Jesus, all of his ministry, until his time, the time of his ascension. And crucially, that they might be witnesses with us of the resurrection. <clears throat> now when it says witnesses, it means just that in the legal court-related sense of the term. Now when we say witness, we mean evangelize, or we mean, you know, tell the gospel. And that's a secondary derived meaning. But the fundamental core meaning for the New Testament apostles and for the New Testament Christianity is we actually saw the risen Jesus. That's the basis for Christian faith. That's the, because people really saw, that's the reason that you believe about anything that you believe about some person in history. Because people whom you consider reliable were there when it happened, wrote it down or told about it, and now, you know, you think that George Washington exists. You can't re reproduce that in a scientific lab or something like that. You believe that Julius Caesar exists because people whom you consider reliable said that he did. That is the core of why people today should believe in Jesus and all that he is and all that the New Testament says that he is. Again, another message for another time. But that's Peter's point. We're witnesses of it. We've spent 40 days with them. We've eaten dinner with them since he was raised again from the dead. And now Peter tells the significance of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David didn't ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord, that is God the Father, said to my Lord, that is the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus... This carpenter from Galilee, this Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, this now risen, exalted to the Father's right hand Jesus, is now supreme authority, Lord of everybody, everywhere. And Christ means he's the end time savior king. That's who Jesus really is. So not surprisingly, when the people heard this, the people who had been sort of culpable in this, the people who had gotten the verdict so very wrong about Jesus themselves and had been in a sense a party to all of this, 
When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? We killed God's son. We crucified the one who's Lord of everybody everywhere. What are we going to do now, Peter? And Peter's answer is, repent. That is, you need to change your mind and perspective about Jesus in the profoundest of ways. You need to come to acknowledge him for who he is and all that that means. That's what's bound up in the word repent. And you signal it with baptism, a public profession and expression of your new repentance and faith and allegiance. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. You become his. You become a Christ one, a Christian, for the forgiveness of your sins, including your sin of spurning him, your sin of ignoring and rejecting him. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Peter goes on to warn, literally to testify, to continue to bear witness And he says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted that message, who came to believe that Jesus now was who Peter says he was, those who accepted that message, they were baptized. And about 3,000, the Holy Spirit working through the Word, 3,000 were added to the number of the church of Jesus Christ that day. The book of Acts contains at least three other summaries of the life and ministry, the saving death and victorious resurrection of the exaltation of Jesus. We don't have time to read them, but read through the book of Acts this week and see again and again these summaries of his sort of saving work and career and then what they mean. They always come to this climactic conclusion The resurrection of the crucified Jesus from Nazareth is the ultimate proof that he is God's Messiah, that he is the end-time king, savior that we've all been waiting for, and that this risen and exalted Jesus would be the one who will finally carry out the ultimate and total victory of the kingdom, the reign of God. His saving victory now means forgiveness of sins and transformation by the Holy Spirit. And those are the two things that human beings need the most, aren't they? We need forgiveness for our guilt and shame. That is a deep, deep deep-seated human need. We need forgiveness. We need pardon. We need cleansing. And the crucified and risen Jesus is the only real and ultimate source for that. But also, he gives us the Holy Spirit, because we need to change. We need to people, be people no longer in love with death and hate and sin the way that we are. In our honest moments, we don't understand ourselves. We don't understand what we become. We don't understand the, the choices, the self-destroying, others-harming choices and patterns that we continue to make. So the second thing we most needed to be saved as a human race was power to change. And the exalted risen Jesus gives that too. He sends the Holy Spirit to give that kind of transformation. 
Christians, church, we have the most necessary, the most glorious, and the most blessed message that every person, and blessed answer and salvation that every person really and truly needs. We can tell people you can be forgiven and you can be changed. That's the good news. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. His saving victory now means this forgiveness of sin and transformation by the Holy Spirit. And it means at the end of the age, the total defeat of all God's enemies. That's how it's said again and again in the book of Acts. And the restoration and renewal of the cosmos in a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness and shalom. Theologian Herman Bovink and some people are like, uh-oh, theologian, don't be that way. Theology means the study of God. Rightly understood, a reverent person who devotes himself to the study of the works and words and ways of God, we should be grateful for as one of the teaching gift pastors that Christ gives to the church. And Herman Bovink says, for the work he now carries out as the exalted mediator, he laid the foundation in the cross. In his battle with sin, the world, and Satan, the cross has been his only weapon. And we'll see that more in a moment. By the cross, he triumphed in the sphere of justice over all powers that are hostile to God. But now, in the state of exaltation, remember the Apostles' Creed, who now sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, that sitting, that heavenly session, theologians call it, from the Latin word for sitting, that's where Christ is at the place of honor. That's where Jesus of Nazareth is. You know, it's been a joy to be at Israel before, and just the reality of it all, to walk where Jesus walked. I kid around, I, today I shopped where Jesus walked in some of the places. But it, it's a real place. At one point, he was in Capernaum. At one point, he was in Jerusalem. Where is he now? The very same Jesus, just as real, just as human. Where is he now? He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. That's how real our Lord, that's how real our Savior is. And so, in the state of exaltation, he has also been given the divine right, the divine appointment, the royal power and prerogatives to carry out the work of recreation in full, to conquer all his enemies, to save all those who've been given him, and to perfect the entire kingdom of God. That's what Christ is doing from the right hand of God this morning, too in all the world, in all the cosmos. That's the reality of what's playing out now in this world. It is the living and exalted Christ seated at the right hand of God who deliberately and with authority distributes all these benefits, gathers his chosen ones, overcomes his enemies, and directs the history of the world toward the day of his appearing. That's what's happening. That should truly, truly hearten and encourage us. But then, you know, even as I studied this, even as I prepared for this message, I asked, is that really true? When you look at how things are in the world, 
And when you look at how things are, frankly, in the church that has way too much of the world in it, is it really true that Christ is reigning and ruling and directing everything infallibly, inexorably? Because this means that in every circumstance and in every situation, ultimately, the kingdom of God in Jesus is always winning. It's always prevailing. How can we claim that? How can we believe that? Well, first, I consider the way things play out in the book of Acts itself. Jesus is preached on the day of Pentecost as the one exalted, the place of honor at God's right hand with all the power and all authority. And yet soon, both Stephen and James are murdered, martyred. Is that how things go when Jesus is reigning from the Father's right hand? On the other hand, though, Peter is miraculously protected and miraculously rescued from martyrdom and being killed. On the one hand, the believers in Jerusalem begin to experience persecution. Is that how things go in a world where Jesus is really reigning? That they're scattered in persecution? And yet, what happens? The scattering spreads the gospel of this King Jesus faster and further than it otherwise would have. Saul of Tarsus begins a lethal rampage against the church. Is that how things go when Jesus is reigning and ruling from the Father's right hand? A terrorist like Saul of Tarsus arises? And yet, what happens? Saul meets in person the risen and exalted Jesus, is totally transformed, totally turned, and becomes the most mightily used an instrument in Christ's hand to build his churches throughout the Roman Empire. Governmental authorities are often involved in harassing the church. Is that how it goes when Jesus is reigning and ruling? And yet, in an extraordinary episode described in, Hebrew, in Acts chapter 12, God defying Herod Antipas, grandson of wicked Herod the Great, God defying Herod Antipas is mysteriously and dramatically struck down by an angel of the Lord, it says. And what does it say as the sequel? And he was eaten by worms and died. What a detail for Luke to record. But do you know what the very next verse says after telling about the brutal demise of Herod? I'd never noticed this before. Of all things for Luke to say next, he says this. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. That's the world we live in. Where this mysterious, this inexplicable, the evil, the amount of it, the brutality of it, the senselessness of it, and yet somehow God is always still on the move. And he's still 
Christ is accomplishing inexorably. It just can't be stopped. His sovereign purpose of overcoming his enemies while he gathers his elect. But then, even more compellingly, it occurred to me again, considering the death and resurrection of Jesus himself, Because again and again in the book of Acts, we are told that Herod and Pilate and the Jewish leaders and some of the Jewish people, they acted wickedly, they acted brutally. And so the servant of Yahweh himself comes into this world. And how does it go for him? How does the kingdom of God do when the king himself is present? He's killed. He's murdered. He's crucified. The worst kind. Is that how things go when God, in the person of his Son, is in our midst proclaiming the kingdom of God? They killed him. They crucified him. Jesus, God's Son and servant, the King who was to come, gets crucified, dead, and buried. And there is a satanic fury to the brutality of how Jesus is killed. Just think of it, lash after lash, energizing those Roman centurions is Satan himself. He is beating, he is going to kill, he is going to get rid of this one who is supposed to bring in the rival kingdom of God. And how does it go? No angels show up. Nobody delivers. He's a bloody, horrible mess. People can't even stand to look at him. And he dies. Evil wins. Satan wins. He's dead. It's done. Right? Not even close. That's what the book of Acts wants you to feel about the resurrection. It is this total reversal. It is this, in fact... Not only does the Bible say that God and his kingdom wins in Christ in spite of the cross, that's not merely the message. What's the real message? That God and his kingdom triumphs in and because of the cross. Even there, especially there. Why are the heavenly hosts now singing praises to Jesus. They're saying he's worthy, he's worthy, he's worthy. And what was the central act that he carried out that makes him worthy and deserving? Worthy is the lamb, what? Who was slain, who was slaughtered. Why is that central? Because that atoned for human sin. What's brought the evil? What's brought the misery? What's brought the natural disasters? The terrible diagnoses? The hatred between races? The hatred between religions? What's brought that down upon us? Our own sin. And the curse that came with it, the divinely deserved curse. Those were Satan's weapons. But if you make an atonement for that sin... If you pay the price in God's government for that sin, which only the God-man Jesus could do. But that's why he said, and he said it, and it was a win. It was a victory. He was announcing it. 
as he died. It is accomplished. It is the atoning, redeeming, curse-reversing work. It is finished. And from then on, death's not going to be able to keep him down. Now, it's inevitable. It's certain he's going to be back. And he's going to be back beyond someone like Lazarus. He's resurrected to a whole new order of existence. And what Peter says is the punchline. God made this Nazarene Jesus whom you crucified Lord of everybody, everywhere. That's the meaning and the message of the resurrection. So what? And I need to rush to some applications. This time the saying is actually true. People say it all the time in commercials, but this time it's real. This changes everything. It really does. Let me hurry through them this morning. We'll come back to them somewhat in the evening message tonight. First of all, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth guarantees the final victory of the reign of God, which means this, that the good and the true will win, and the evil and the bogus and the false are going to lose in every application you can think of in every realm where right now the evil and the false and the bogus seem to be prevailing, they're not going to prevail. And every situation and circumstance and relationship and calling and system of government and system of culture where it looks like evil and error and the bogus and the abusive are winning, they're not going to win. Because he's appointed a day for a man to judge the world with justice, Jesus. And he's signaled who it was by raising him from the dead. Every rival, God-defying worldview, religion, philosophy will be defeated and deposed. All the systems of injustice and evil and hate that contradict the gospel, including we should realize more and more the way that it's roiling our society today, all the racial systems of injustice and alienation and hatred that contradict the gospel, they are on their way out. They will be deposed and defeated, and we should participate as God's people and God's kingdom in that work now. Biblical Christianity will be vindicated and victorious. Worldly, people-pleasing rather than God-glorifying, compromising Christianity, however prevalent it might seem, it's on the way out. It's illegitimate. And Christianity that is centered in Christ and is spiritual and scriptural is going to win, is going to prevail. True Christianity may not seem as impressive when judged by this world's standards, but the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus guarantees that whatever this world may think, the truth of Jesus and the kingdom of Jesus is going to win. The risen and exalted Christ is the true head of every church. 
and he governs his church by his word and by his spirit. Every pastor, every minister, every church leader should be zealously concerned to guide and to govern, not to please people, but to glorify Christ, the King, and the head of the church. The Spirit gives life. The flesh is useless, Jesus says. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and are life. Jesus' resurrection means his saving work was a success. So now he can offer the two things I said before that we desperately need the most. Forgiveness. It's finished. It's paid for. There is now no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so to the non-believer here this morning, that is, you've never really come to Christ. The message and application to you is the same that it was on that day of Pentecost. You need to repent to profoundly change your mind and perspective in the deepest of ways regarding Jesus Christ, entrusting yourself and to Him and to His cross work alone for being right with God, for being forgiven. And then surrendering, surrendering yourself in total devotion to this Jesus who is Lord. The message to you this morning is repent and believe the good news. If you confess and declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And for the true Christian here this morning, the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus means... Every act of faithfulness, every act of obedience, even when it goes against the grain of a compromised and worldly Christianity, every act of faithful service, work, and witness, especially the ones that nobody else sees and nobody else knows about, they will be richly rewarded and they are eternally significant because Jesus is the risen Lord who's coming back to judge. That's why the great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, ends this way. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know something. You know, and he doesn't say it here, but he's been saying it in the whole chapter, Christ is risen from the dead. You know that in a Christ-governed cosmos, your work in the Lord is never in vain. It will always be plugged into the part of the victory of the kingdom of God that Christ our King himself is accomplishing. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even cruel cross death. Therefore, not in spite of, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name, the title, Lord, that is above every name, that at the name given to Jesus, every knee shall bow, every heavenly knee, every earthly knee, and every under-earthly knee will bow, 
and every tongue confess, acknowledge, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And God's joyful, trusting church says, Amen. Amen. Father, help us live in the reality of the resurrection and exaltation of this cosmos only sovereign, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. In light of these truths, let's stand and as we close, sing that chorus of He is Lord. If you need it, that's hymn number 105. Hymn number 105. Let's sing together. He is Lord. May the God of peace, the God of shalom, the way things are supposed to be, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you, Christian, with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And again, God's believing people. God's hoping people say, Amen. Amen.